invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Exodus. <clears throat> so it's just the second book in the Bible. It shouldn't be too hard to find. And we're looking at the very first chapter. So we are taking a break from our series on, on the book of Acts. And uh, we'll resume that um, in January again. <clears throat> But uh, this morning we're going to begin looking at our Advent uh, theme. So as we wait for Jesus, and our theme uh, this year is, is um, Christmas is for children. And so this uh, series in particular is meant for our children, and I'd like them to, to really pay special attention, um, if possible, and, um, and hear what, what God might be saying to you um, that's, that title, I guess, is a little misleading, and what I'm really thinking of is uh, our Jesus' words, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And uh, when he says that, he's referring to children, but, but really all, to all the little ones, all the overlooked um, in the world. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at a number of different uh, children in Scripture um, throughout this series. And we're going to look this morning at, um, at Moses' sister. And so we'll begin reading in Exodus 1 <clears throat> with uh, verse 6. The first five verses just tell of um, the family of Jacob who has come into Egypt. If you recall the stories of, of Joseph, and um, they are still in Egypt, then we'll pick up the story of verse 6. And I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open um, this morning. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and fo with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, 
Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But every girl, or but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. And uh, the word here in Hebrew is she got an ark for him. An ark. Papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, in, in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we see the, uh, the story of, of Christmas beginning to pop up all around us these days. <clears throat> and I'm not referring to, you know, the lights and the decorations and all that kind of stuff, but to the actual story, to the actual themes of, of Christmas. That's what's beginning to pop up. The story of, of a God who came into his world clandestinely, um, quietly, silently, clothed in weakness, but then turned everything upside down. Um, let me point out just one example, okay? One movie that, that shows up on our television vision screens. You can watch it, I think, just about every, every night this month, and it's the story of Home Alone, right? It's the story of a little boy, Kevin McAllister, who's left alone by his family when his family travels to Paris for Christmas and they've got so many kids they overlook the fact that that they're missing one of them and so there he is all alone in this big house I think it's somewhere in Illinois fighting off burglars who want to dispossess his home of all of the goods that it contains now home alone <clears throat> is a story of what it's a story of the weak against the strong the small against the mighty. It's the story of, of a child against adults, the innocent versus the evil. As I said, 
It's a story of Christmas. It's got all the Christmas themes, at least, at least most of them. Because the person who taught us these themes best, I think, and we'll, we'll call her Mary, the mother of Jesus, she sang a song about those themes. And in that song, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? She magnifies the Lord. She makes the Lord bigger. She proclaims who her Savior really is. Now, that's not a message you get in Home Alone. Because the Savior in a movie like that is the child himself. Right? The chi or the movie celebrates, um, celebrates Kevin's cleverness and his booby traps as he kind of saves the day, right? He turns his door stoops into ice rinks and he heats up doorknobs and he turns paint cans into pendulums. And by doing all of this, he saves himself. He's saved by his own cunning, his own inventiveness. He saves himself. And, and so as a result of movies like this and some of these themes, children are honored, they're praised for their own resourcefulness, for their own creativity. They're sort of self-made saviors. And I want to be clear, that's not what this series is about. Okay? We're going to look at different children that, that come up in Scripture. We're going to examine their lives but I don't want you to walk away praising these children for their cleverness and for their imagination. That's not why the Bible tells us their stories. Why are they in the Bible then? So that we give glory to God. Okay? So that we walk away with hope. And so that we live in faith. That's why the Bible tells these stories. So let's, let's begin this morning by looking at the account of Miriam, all right, Moses' sister. Um, when we come to these early chapters of Genesis, one of the things we have to understand is that there are two stories that are being told here. Two stories. The first is the story of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world. His throne sits in the most powerful nation of the world. And so Pharaoh is the kind of guy who, when he gives an order, people jump. Pharaoh controls the destinies not just of individuals, but of nations. Pharaoh represents then the status quo of the world. And what I say when I, or what I mean when I say that, is that Pharaoh represents the way things work and the way things have always worked in the world. Okay? the way things work and the way things have always worked. The race goes to the swift, right? The battle goes to the strong. The winner gets the girl. That's how the world works. That's the way it's always worked. This is the way it's always been. And this is the world that Pharaoh is sworn to protect. That's his job, to make certain that nothing changes the way the world is. And so you'll notice that his world is also a world that's filled with fear. Fear and trepidation. Pharaoh and his people, as you read the text, 
They fear the children of Israel. The children of Israel are a threat to them. They're afraid that they will become too numerous. And if they become too numerous, Pharaoh will lose control. And so Pharaoh resorts to what everyone resorts to who lives this narrative. They all sooner or later resort to violence, to the use of force. Pharaoh seeks to protect his interests via power. Okay? This whole story turns on verse 8. There we read, okay? A new king came to power in Egypt, a king who did not remember, he did not know Joseph. So remember Joseph's whole story and how he came to Egypt and how he saved not only the Egyptians but the entire world? This Pharaoh didn't know that story. This Pharaoh forgot that story. And so this story quickly turns into one of slavery and oppression and racism and ruthless treatment and finally genocide, trying to wipe out the whole nation of Israel. Now, we see this played out best at the end of chapter 1, where Pharaoh turns the Nile River, which is a source of life for all of Egypt, he turns the Nile River into the waters of death for all the little boys in Israel. This is a dark, dark story, friends. And it seems even darker when you consider that God is hardly mentioned here at all. He's hardly mentioned. Yahweh seems almost completely absent. And that makes Pharaoh loom even larger in the text. But Yahweh is not absent. In fact, he's the subject of the second story. So Pharaoh is subject number one. Yahweh is the subject of the second story. And his fingerprints are actually all over this text all over these chapters, but it takes some looking to find him. In other words, God is hidden. He's undercover. He's silent. He's quiet. And if you were an Israelite in Egypt at this time, that's probably the way that it felt. Like God was absent. Where was he? Why wasn't he helping them? Why had he gone away? He was nowhere to be found. That's maybe how it felt. But that's not the way it was. Because God was here. He is here. We just need someone to point it out to us. For instance, remember back in Genesis, right? God made a promise to Abraham that one day his children would count as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sands on the seashore. That's how many descendants he would have. And the rest of the book of Genesis is all about, will God actually keep that promise? Will he and Sarah actually even have one son, right? Will they have one son? Exodus 1 tells us that when Jacob and his sons immigrated to Egypt, there were 70 of them in all. 70, okay? Big deal. But then we read in verse 7 in our text, that in Egypt, those 70 were fruitful and multiplied and became exceedingly numerous. In other words, they multiplied like rabbits, is what the text is telling us. In other words, God 
was at work. God was at work fulfilling his promises, just like he said he would. Another one, God had promised that he and his offspring, Abraham and his offspring, would become a great nation. They would become the kind of nation that would, that would be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. In fact, they would become a nation of priests, priests who would, who would bring the reality, the real God, to all the peoples of the world and to bring those peoples of the world to the real God. Do you know where it is? The first time in Scripture that the children of Abraham are actually referred to as a nation, where they become a nation? It's in verse 9 of our text. You don't see it in the NIV, but it's there in the ESV where it says, Behold, the people of Israel, this is Pharaoh, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And that word people in Hebrew is also the word nation. This nation of Israel is too many and too mighty for us. God is at work doing exactly what he said he would do, pulling people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's his story. But Pharaoh was still protecting his turf. Pharaoh was at work oppressing the slaves. Pharaoh was killing off the male children. Pharaoh was at work using the Nile to kill off God's plan of redemption. That's what we see. That's what we see here. That's what's plainly visible. But friends, you cannot forget that God is also at work here. And we see it in the ironies of this text, right? What some people refer to as Jewish humor. For instance, the most powerful man in the world, he institutes a plan to kill off an entire people from the face of the earth, and that plan is foiled by who? By two midwives, two slaves, two foreigners, two women, two basically nobodies but they foil the king. Here's a king that we never learn his name, but two midwives, their names live for all of eternity, Shifra and Pua. They are the ones that, that we remember. How do they foil the king? How do they foil him? What do they say? You know, Pharaoh's walking around, why do I keep seeing all these Israelite boys around? I thought I gave orders that they should all be killed. He goes to the midwives. What's going on here? What do they tell him? Well, Hebrew women are just more vigorous than Egyptian women. They never need the, the midwives, so we can't do anything. And Pharaoh believes it. It's Hebrew humor. Okay? It's irony in this text that here are women who turn out to be the saviors. It's actually the daughter of Pharaoh who ends up raising the boy who will deliver Israel from Egypt. It's all irony. It's Hebrew humor. But the biggest irony of all is verse 22. The last, the last verse of chapter 1. Pharaoh gives the order, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh, kill all the boys. God, I'll use the girls. Kill all the boys, then I'll use all the girls. Think about it. 
Pharaoh obviously doesn't know what he's up against here, does he? I mean, Pharaoh puts all of his confidence and all of his, his faith in the power structures of this present age. It's the boys who are going to make a difference in the world, right? It's the boys who always cause trouble. It's the boys that, that save. And he's clearly not familiar with the ironies of God's kingdom. As Paul said, that God uses the weak, what is low and despised in the world, to shame the strong. God uses the girls. That's the irony of God, or, or better, call it gospel truth. Gospel truth. And before Moses could do any delivering at all, he himself was delivered by the compassion and the love and the devotion of three women. Three women. Three role players, right? His mom, his sister, and Pharaoh's very own daughter. The role players save the star. And friends, what I hope you see, what I want you to see, is that the power of God, which is at work here, the power of God, which is at work, is the same. The power of God that we see on display in Moses as he calls down ten plagues on Egypt, as he divides the Red Sea, as he calls water from a rock, that same power of God is on display no less in the quiet faithfulness of these women. It's the same power of the same God. And one of these women is just a little girl. A little girl who all she wanted to do was, was see what was going to happen to her brother. Or maybe we should see, say oversee what was going to happen to her brother. But she sees better than we think. She sees beyond the bravado and the bluster of Pharaoh. She's not intimidated by the raging commands of a king because Miriam knows the story of her God. Miriam sees the hand of Yahweh at work in the story of her people, in her own story, in the story of her family. She is familiar with the ways of God even his quiet ways. And therefore, Miriam moves to the beat of a different drummer. Where did Miriam get her vision? How did she learn to see? How did she learn to perceive that God was at work, even quietly? Where did she learn that? Well, she learned it from Shipra and Pua. She learned it from her own mother for three months, hid Moses, hid him away. She learned from her mothers of faith that there is a time for courage and there is a time for civil disobedience and there is a time to deny the world's powers and there is a time to be willing to die. She learned from her mothers of faith that there is only one true king over all the earth and that is not Pharaoh, that is Yahweh. There is one higher authority, and his name is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this Yahweh hears the cries of the oppressed. And this Yahweh acts to redeem all of those who are enslaved, all of those. 
And Yahweh works his salvation. He works that salvation through people just like her. Just like her. And just like her mothers of faith. He works his salvation through little ones. Through the last and the least. Through the overlooked. Through servants and slaves in a world of kings through children in a world of adults, through little girls in the world of boys, through a baby born in a manger, through the weakness of God that Paul says is stronger than man's strength, and through the foolishness of God that Paul says is wiser than man's wisdom. Miriam's greatness is in a faith that makes this God visible to every one of us. That's her greatness. She makes God visible to us. We see him. We see his story. We see how he works. We see how he redeems and that he redeems. That's Miriam's greatness. Friends, Exodus begins with two stories. Two stories that are being told. And those same two stories are being told today. We see them every day. One story is loud. It's the story of, of kings and their genocidal ways. The other story is quiet. It's the story of Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ. And if you live in the same world that I do, and maybe it wasn't such a good week this last week in those terms, was it? I mean, according to the ticker, violence was up. War was even. Selfishness was at an all-time high. And the kingdom of God was down two points. To be quite honest, God was hard to spot. And he has been for a while. And when that happens, when, when God is hidden, when he isn't plainly obvious to us, then all of our enemies, they, they all loom larger, don't they? Not just Pharaoh, but greed and lust and war and famine and earthquake and cancer and depression and addiction. And all of these things seem so foreboding that we might as well throw in the towel. But faith, faith tells us a different story, doesn't it? Faith tells us that God is still at work and that he has not left the world without witnesses. One of those witnesses we saw this morning in the sacrament of baptism. Baptism tells us that God is still pulling children out of the waters of death, isn't he? Just as, just as God provided a, an ark for Noah and pulled him out of the waters of death, he also provided an ark for Moses and pulled him out of the waters of death. And baptism is where we hear the story of how Jesus went down into the waters of death and rose up as an ark to save all of those who will put their faith in him. Baptism tells the story children. God is still pulling little children like Isaiah from the waters of death.
And those children are still putting their faith in a God who is not always visible, but in the process, they are making him visible. Let me give you two examples. A few weeks ago, I attended a, a Safe Families Gala. It was a fundraiser called a gala. Um, all these fundraisers have names like that. If you're not familiar with Safe Families, it's a ministry in which they try to provide homes for children. Um, it's sort of pre-foster care to keep children out of the foster care system and to keep families together. Two, two parents uh, told stories that night. The first one was a woman who actually is one of, she works for Safe Families, and she had the opportunity to take in a nine-year-old child, I think it was a little girl, and um, that opportunity came her way across her desk, and she said, you know, <clears throat> I'm confident with babies. I love babies. I can handle babies. I'm not confident with little nine-year-old girls. And her own daughters heard that, and they came to her, and I think they were like nine and ten at the time. And they said, Mom, we got this. And she didn't mean, or they didn't mean we in terms of, we'll help you a little bit. They meant we in terms of, we got this. We'll take care of this little nine-year-old girl. Because they said that, she could do it. Second story was from another couple. It was another family. It was a family of four little girls. I think we have a picture of them, four little girls. Their family had the opportunity to take care of that little baby. Well, you can imagine if you have four little girls like that, and you're the parents, and they come to you and say, can you take one more? Most of us would say, are you crazy? Do you see what we have here as parents to deal with? So these little girls knew that. <clears throat> and went to their parents and begged that they could take in this little child. And they didn't just beg and say, this is what you have to do, Mom and Dad. They said, and this is what we will do to make sure it can happen. If you put up that next slide, this is what they wrote out. And just in case you can't see it, I'll read it for you. It says, because we are getting a half-baby brother, we need to... One, make sure he doesn't eat anything small. Two, watch appropriate movies. Three, make him educated. Four, be careful around him. And five, be quiet while he sleeps. Appropriate movements only. Isn't that great? I don't know about you, but I see, <clears throat> I see Miriam all over those little girls. They know that God is at work in this world. That he really is. They see that. They've learned to see that. They didn't pick that up on their own. Somewhere in their lives is a Shifra and a Pua. And through their faithfulness to their God that they know is real, 
They want to make him visible for all the world to see. They sing a song. It's a song we learn from Mary. It's a song that Miriam sang. And it's a song that all of us little ones sing. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Those little girls, Miriam, Mary, they make God bigger so that all of us can see that he really is at work. Children, I just want to be clear this morning, okay? I want you to know that God doesn't only work through people like Moses. And he doesn't only work through adults. He doesn't only work through the powerful and the privileged. He works through people just like you. Just like you. And he does it not so that the world sees how smart we are or how clever we are, but so that the world sees how great a God he really is. And so that the whole world has hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that you would never stop using your people, your children, to tell the story that you are real and that you are a God who has come to save all those who are in trouble. Give us the faith to make you visible in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.